Hi there, it's Mackenzie Seward, a producer at Mamaroneck Public Radio. We are taught that first impressions are important, but what happens when you never get the chance to even establish one because of preconceived stereotypes? How could that affect your disposition when you're judged before you even enter the room? Reporter Elizabeth Brissett delves into the stereotypes of Appalachians and evaluates them after speaking with a diverse group of West Virginians to try and uncover the truth. I'm going to tell you two words, and I want you to think about the first things that come to mind. Okay, ready? West Virginia. Now, whatever your mind just jumped to, whatever just popped into your head, odds are someone else has thought it too. Sometimes redneck-y, a little ignorant. Redneck hillbillies, ignorant. Not educated. We're a bunch of hillbillies. Bunch of redneck inbred hicks. These people were asked the same question. People from West Virginia. Were your answers similar? I'm willing to bet they were. This is a stereotype, a generalization of the whole Appalachian community shared by people across the nation. Now don't worry, just because your mind immediately went to those things doesn't make you a bad person. This is simply what our nation has come to wholly believe. Or, some of you listening may have agreed with some of these people. Somebody nice, passionate, like always looking out for other people and helping others out in the best way they can. Friendly, definitely familiar with the state. They're passionate, they are very kind, and they love their state. Everyone's just real genuine, and um, they love their state, they love, love their family. There are always two sides to a story, and this story is no exception. This is a story about people. People who have spent the last decade being beaten down by these negative stereotypes, trying to survive the ridicule that they get every day. Ridicule that, as I showed you before, may not be as true as it seems. Well, I'm here to investigate just that, whether these generalizations are accurate, whether they're accurate enough to be applied to the whole population, or if they're accurate enough to even be used at all. I'm from Westchester, New York, and I don't immediately come off as someone who would care about this type of thing. I had never done anything associated with West Virginia besides belting out the chorus to take me home country roads from time to time. However, when I signed up to take a journalism class and finish the summer reading books, a budding interest began to grow. We read Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance and What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia by Elizabeth Catt. You probably haven't read either of them, so I'll just tell you. The messages of these two books are the complete opposite of each other regarding Appalachia and West Virginia in particular. The first revealed some horrific truths about the society and the people who live there, and the second pointed out important forgotten points in the first. So, I had a lot of questions that I wanted answers to, yet I had no way to get them. Then, about two weeks into the school year, my teacher told us that we would actually be going to the place that we had been talking about since the summer. We would spend four days interacting with the people that had otherwise been foreign to me. This was my chance to talk to the people, the only people that could answer my questions. And I got answers, but it was not as black and white as I had expected.
So yes, the 40 or so journalism students boarded a coach bus at 5.30 in the morning, riding for seven hours south to Morgantown, West Virginia. We were all still a little, you know, stunned that we were actually on our way down there. Most of us slept for the first couple of hours, but the rest of the time was used to finish preparing for our activities. We had a lot planned. Between luncheons with the West Virginia School of Journalism faculty, meetings with professors and other professionals in the area, and street interviews, we would definitely not have a lot of downtime. I even had an 8 o'clock p.m. AA meeting that I had decided to sit in on. One of the main things that I was working on was finalizing my goal of the trip. Was I going down to confirm my original opinions, that the stereotypes were true, that everything being said about these people was correct? Was I going in with an open mind to form a completely new opinion? All I knew was that I was going for answers. I thought about the stereotypes that were being used the most to describe the region. Uneducated, lazy, hillbilly, and so much more. The assumption that I had become aware of the most in the reading, and in current events, was that there was an overwhelming abundance of drug addiction in Appalachia, and West Virginia especially. J.D. Vance, the author of one of the books I read, had even preached that every person from Appalachia was in some way affected by addiction, whether it was themselves, a family member, or a close friend. Vance's mother had gone back and forth with being clean, and he discusses what it's like to be so close to something like that. One part that I especially remembered was that his mom had had an accident of some sort and was prescribed medication that was very much necessary for the situation. However, as is common with addiction, she became dependent and needed the painkillers even after her injury had subsided. She was a nurse at the time, and she began to steal drugs from her patients. That's the type of desperation that she and almost all who suffer from drug addiction have. Aside from the book, news broadcasts had long been focused on the opioid crisis hitting the area. I couldn't count the number of headlines I had seen with someone overdosing in a store or in their car. The pictures of children looking on as paramedics tended to their parents had always hit me a little harder than other news. Broadcasters would talk about how beaten down the population was from having to deal with this issue, how exhausted and done they were, how unmotivated they had become. So after all this, the number one question that I wanted answers to was, is this really what they're like? Has the news coverage of this issue been skewed to fit the narrative that makes the best story? My logical side told me that the facts didn't lie, but the emotional side made me think that there was simply more to it. As I mentioned before, we interviewed random people in both the places that we visited. We canvassed restaurants, gas stations, and parks looking for regular people to talk to. We probably spanned the entire town when all was said and done. Knowing that there were stereotypes about the region created by those outside, like from those in the Northeast where we came from, we wanted to ask West Virginians what they themselves thought about them. One of the people we approached was a bright older woman named Terry, who mentioned that she had already talked to other people from our journalism class, but that she was still happy to answer our questions. We asked her what she thought about the drug addiction in the area. Um, well, it is prevalent here. It's because of the poverty and because you've probably seen the opioid, opioid epidemic and how they just targeted 
you know, sent all the pills, you know, to the regions around here, and it's just blown up. And so it's just, it's a sad problem that we have to try to overcome. We just have to try to overcome it. That pulled at my emotions and was the first of many hints that pointed to disproving the assumptions. This told me that they realize that they can't deny it and they're not trying to, but they're just doing what they can to stop people from thinking of them as just drug addicted and poor. Her voice even made it seem like she thought that that's what we believed. And it was as if she had been confronted with the issue multiple times and had gotten used to explaining it. The next clip is from a pair of women who were on a walk. They seemed slightly annoyed for having been interrupted, but they still willingly answered our questions. Well, there, we have a high rate of addiction and drug overdose deaths, but that's a fact. There's a lot of issues across the country. Here, it happens to highly be addiction right now um, and overdose and a lot and traumas and all kinds of things, but that doesn't define a place. The Appalachian region has been hit harder by the opioid epidemic than other areas of the country. This is a fact backed up by many studies and statistics. In 2016, the Charleston Gazette Mail found that over 880 million oxycodone and hydrocodone pills were brought into the state of West Virginia alone between 2007 and 2012. That amounts to 433 pills for every person in the state, men, women, and children. 433 of the two strongest painkillers on the market per person. Because many people in Appalachia work in the mining industry or in some kind of manual labor, they have a higher incidence of injury. So they were especially targeted by big pharmaceutical companies. What these companies have failed to realize is that they've left a trail of carnage in their wake. Families are destroyed as parents give more attention to their addictions than they do to their children. But again, this is mostly how the media was portraying these people. I wanted to get an idea for myself of the reality of being in this situation. So as I said before, I went to an AA meeting on our third night there. Now, thinking back through my whole life, I would say that this was the most unlikely place that I would ever happen upon. Again, I was a 17-year-old girl from Westchester, New York. I would never have thought in a million years that I would ever find myself in St. John's Episcopal Church in Charleston, West Virginia at 8 p.m. at night. Nevertheless, I and two other students walked the half mile from our hotel and walked into an experience that I can safely say I will never forget. Here are the two other students, Chloe and Mackenzie, breaking down what they saw. Walk in, there were chairs around the perimeter of the room, but um, there was, yeah, the main circle um, with all the tables, and we were like, okay, like, we're not going to sit at the table. Um, so we sat in two of the chairs um, in the back, um, and people were kind of, you know, they're filtering in, little kids, a lot of very interesting characters are walking in. When they're walking in, I expected many sad faces or faces that look like they don't want to be there, but that wasn't really the case at all. They were just almost happy to be there, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, like you could tell that it's definitely a routine, and everyone there was hugging, shaking hands, asking how the wife is doing, how are the kids doing. Um, There were a lot of people that... Just, they all knew each other, and we immediately realized that we were outsiders. 
So yeah, it was all just a very surreal feeling. There was a little pit in my stomach that grew as the meeting got closer to starting. Chloe and Mackenzie felt the same way. We almost had this fear of eavesdropping on such heavy conversations. I think a lot of it was we had our notebooks out, and then I remember turning to Chloe and being like, we can't take notes during this. Um, there was just something about it that just like didn't sit right. So um, because people were really just laying it all out there, and I was like, that's just such... I felt like it was such an invasion, and so I was like, I'm just going to try and remember every little thing that I can. Even if we did feel comfortable taking notes, there was not a lot that you could write down. And anyways, there was no forgetting the things that we heard. What hasn't been said, which is very much worth mentioning, is that many of the people brought their children. There were at least five kids, ranging from ages 3 to 12. For them, I think making it a family experience helped them with the process of getting and staying sober. There was one story in particular that we especially remembered about a young family of three. The daughter was maybe three or four years old, and she was so cute. She had this bubbly, giggly personality, and whenever the room started to clap, she would go nuts clapping and cheering. Mackenzie summed it up nicely. Kind of going along with that family that I was just talking about, so the dad had a stutter, the mom was three months pregnant, yeah. and the mom was sharing. She looked really young. Yeah. She did not look like your typical mom. She looked very young. The dad looked very young. And so the mother's pregnant three months, and she relapsed, and she felt horrific. And there's just something about the way she was speaking that she felt so guilty because the daughter that was cheering for everybody, she was born an addict because... The mother was addicted throughout that entire pregnancy, which is just something that it was heart wrenching. And when she was sharing her story, there was just showed that there was just so much guilt, especially on the mother's half. I mean, the father was also feeling he was also an addict as well. He talked more about himself and then the mom just felt horrible for her. She didn't want this child to be born an addict. You could sense the vulnerability. Many of these people, when they first walked in at least, seemed pretty scary looking. If many of them had stopped me on the street before this, I would probably be really nervous. But as the night went on, the walls and barriers that made these people look so tough just kind of dissipated. Their appearance was not a representation of their feelings or what they'd been through. Like for anything that comes up that seems to be more prominent in a place, Like, that doesn't define a place. That seems to be the million-dollar idea. I mean, isn't that why stereotypes are so bad? But that was so vague that I needed to do a little more digging. So I interviewed a man by the name of Kirk Hazen. He's a professor at West Virginia University who focuses on linguistics, and specifically the stereotypes regarding speech. His research is a part of the sociology department and piqued my interest as soon as I saw his profile. I interviewed him over the phone as he wasn't available for a sit-down interview when we were there. He's been working in West Virginia for over 10 years, so he's become pretty much integrated into the society. He brought a unique perspective that I was glad to have. He's very much aware of the blatant stereotypes, including the one of their being drug addicted. 
As we continued to talk, you could almost sense the frustration in his voice growing stronger and stronger. I interrupted my planned set of questions to ask him what about the generalizations angered him the most. Just how much it misses the diversity of people who are here. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, ethnically, there's all kinds of uh, ethnic groups in Appalachia, and it's just never part of the stereotypes. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, no one thinks about, oh, Italians and Clarksburg or Fairmont who have been here over 100 years in their families. And they're part of Appalachia, but they never get considered to be Appalachian. He emphasized that when we paint the whole population as having just a few characteristics, whole communities and cultures are ignored. He went on to say how not only do ethnicities get forgotten, but the good qualities that almost everyone has also get forgotten. Just a couple of minutes ago, I played the responses of several people saying that West Virginians are kind, passionate, and genuine people. I don't know about you, but I've never heard those words come out of a news broadcaster's mouth or seen them in a newspaper article. I continued with my tangent. How do you think these stereotypes have changed Appalachian society, like, internally? Uh, makes people wary of outsiders, uh, makes people very self-conscious when they do go elsewhere. So I'm not sure if it's having effects directly in people's day-to-day lives, but when they are confronted with them, they very much are othered. They very much start to recognize their place, their supposed place in society and how others do them. So at this point, Even when West Virginians attempt to do something to better themselves, they have this cloud of negativity hanging over their head that they can't shake. It follows them everywhere, outweighing any positive thing that they do. If all of your negative personality traits, or even ones that didn't apply to you, were constantly displayed and emphasized, would you start to question your purpose? Would you ask yourself, well, is this even worth it? We as outsiders, have put West Virginians in this position and now expect them to do twice the work for half of the praise. Another thing that I thought as I was riding the bus down was what would they think of us New Yorkers? I had to rethink how I would ask questions because I didn't want to offend anyone. I didn't want anyone to get defensive when they were answering. I understood that, to them, I was one of those outsiders that assumed the worst about them. Ironically, there were two people in particular who brought this up and reminded me of what we looked like to them. They both said these things on their own accord without even being asked. The first one is from Kirk Hazen, the man that you just heard from moments ago. You know, in some ways, it'd be like going to New York City and expecting to only find homeless people, uh, you know, sleeping in alleyways and pushing uh, grocery carts. On another note, when anyone from New York or the Northeast thinks of Southerners, a good characteristic that we think of is them being overly nice. We think that our level of niceness is normal and that they just go above and beyond. Well... As it turns out, that's not the case in their eyes. 
There are a lot of misconceptions about New Yorkers, too. People yeah. Think, people think you're pushy and not really nice. So they think the opposite. They think that their niceness is regular and that we are just far below them. Out of the 15 or so people that I interviewed, two told me what they thought I and New Yorkers in general were like before even having a conversation with me. And even though statistics tells us that a small sample size is not indicative of the larger population, two out of about 15 is still a very large percentage. The script was flipped, and I was the one being stereotyped. I got to experience how they felt to a much smaller extent, of course. I mean, would you rather be assumed to be a little mean or addicted to drugs? But it was a little uncanny how similar the situations were. It's very true that New Yorkers tend to be a little more standoffish and rude, but I didn't want people thinking I was mean. It's true that many Appalachians have issues with drug addiction, but they don't want that to be the first thing people think of. So I had a lot to think about on the bus ride down, yet I had even more to think about on the bus ride back. What I had witnessed and experienced was something that couldn't be explained, yet now my job was to make it all into one big story. I've always been told that every story needs a point or a lesson, so that's the first thing that I thought of. What was my point? What did I take away from all of this? The biggest thing was that I was able to connect to people. I somewhat lived the life of a West Virginia for a couple days, and just from that short period of time, I got a glimpse of their society. The most important thing was that I left with a better understanding of human relationships. I've been told by countless people that you shouldn't judge people by how they look, talk, or anything like that. But this was the first time that I understood that on this large of a scale, changing the way I looked at a whole community was a lot more powerful than just thinking twice about giving someone a sideways look for what they were wearing. I also realized that Appalachians aren't the only ones going through this. There are tons of other people that are going through this, whether they realize it or not. We have perfect images of people from all over the country, and all over the world for that matter. Californians are hippies. Texans might as well be cowboys. People from New England are preppy and privileged. I could go on, but there's really no need. You've probably come up with a couple other ones already. Now learning a lesson is easy, but teaching a lesson is extremely difficult. Getting through to people takes time, and time that I don't necessarily have. So I've tried to show you. Hopefully you see what I do now. Maybe you always have. Hopefully there will be a time in the future where nearly everyone sees it. Hopefully that time is soon.